Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Cuba and Venezuela policy in Biden's America Last Agenda. Please welcome Mike Gonzalez, the Heritage Foundation's Angelus T. Arandonda E. Pluribus Unum Senior Fellow. Thank you very much. I'll wait for my uh, panelists to uh, sit. Uh, thanks for all for being here. Thank you, uh, the many people, close to 200, I think, that are online. Um, we have an excellent panel today. Uh, we're here to discuss Cuba and Venezuela. And I should say the triggering event for this panel are the, are the concessions that the Biden administration made <clears throat> this month to these two biggest foes that America has. Uh, with Cuba, Biden effectively reopened Cuba for tourism as he lifted uh, travel bans imposed by the Trump administration. And he also removed the limits on remittances. Uh, these limits were starving the regime of cash. Uh, and the administration did all this less than a year after a massive wave of repression of dissidents in Cuba. Uh, with Venezuela, the administration gave the go-ahead for Chevron and other oil companies to reopen their drilling businesses in that country. So at a time when the Biden administration is uh, restricting domestic energy, he's giving the dictator Maduro the green light, and he also lifted uh, sanctions on his inner circle. Uh, to discuss these matters, you're not here to listen to me. I know you're here to listen to this, these distinguished panelists. Uh, I'm going to introduce them. I'm going to, because I have, my time is brief, I'm going to have to leave some things out. Right here to my left is my good friend, Jose Cardenas. He's a former senior official at the State Department, National Security Council, and USAID, overseeing Latin America and the Caribbean under President George W. Bush. He has served as senior advisor to the Secretary General of the Organization of American States. Directly to Jose's left, we have also my good friend, Victoria Coates. She's a distinguished fellow for strategic security studies at the American National Policy Council, focusing precisely on energy policy. She previously served as deputy, uh, no, sorry, the deputy national security advisor on the President Trump and a senior advisor to Energy Secretary Dan Briette. After that is my new friend, Carrie Philippe. No, actually, no, I met Carrie before. She's the executive director at the Vandenberg Coalition and former deputy assistant secretary of state under President Trump. During her time at the State Department, she served as a deputy special representative for Venezuela and as a senior advisor to the Havana Incidents Task Force. And then uh, uh, all the way at the left, only physically, obviously, is a senior, uh, is Emmanuel Otolenghi, is a senior fellow at the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense and Democracies. They do really, really good work over there. Uh, prior to joining FDD, Emmanuel headed the Transatlantic Institute in Brussels and taught Israel studies at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Uh, I have asked my uh, fellow panelists to give some introductory remarks. I will start uh, from Jose and work our way out. Jose, floor is yours. Thank you, Mike, and uh, thank you uh, to Heritage Foundation for uh, sponsoring this uh, very timely discussion. Um, obviously, uh, too often overlooked part of the world uh, that has such uh, extreme consequences for U.S. national interests if we uh, obviously understand what's happening at our border uh, today. I, I just wanted to make some uh, quick remarks to sort of set the tone 
uh, for our discussion and, and hopefully a robust discussion and, and your questions and, and those who are, uh, of course, watching online. I wanted to begin by just reading a quick quote, uh, and that is uh, thus, uh, throughout our history, we've learned this lesson. When dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. They keep moving, and the costs and the threats to America and the world keep rising. The one who said that was President Joe Biden at his State of the Union address this past March. And how do you reconcile that quote with the recent policy changes announced on Venezuela and, and uh, Cuba? The answer is you can't. I wanted to separate briefly uh, Venezuela from Cuba because I think there were, uh, even though there was a consistent, uh, I think, ideological undertone, the circumstances were just a little bit different. In, in the case of Venezuela and the infamous trip that three senior officials took to Caracas uh, earlier this year in March, uh, is that was basically a result of the White House panicking after the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You had the energy side of the house, and Victoria will talk a little bit about this more. The energy side of the house was basically, uh, they, I don't know, maybe they were working off a, uh, a CIA fact book 20 years ago. They believed that Venezuela was an oil producer. It used to be before Chavez and Maduro destroyed that sector. Venezuela is responsible for today less than 1% of what the world consumes today in oil. So this idea that we needed to go to Venezuela for more oil to calm the markets was simply, utterly unbased on any fact. And the second part of the problem is this, is that for those of you who are studying international relations out there, when you have a sanctions regime on a particular adversary. The purpose is, is that you want them to come to you for sanctions relief. You do not go to them offering sanctions relief because you have just signaled to them that it, sanctions relief is more important to you than it is to them. And so it is no surprise that ever since that March meeting, the Maduro regime has been slapping the very weak hand that the Biden administration posed to him. On Cuba, the changes that we saw that Mike referenced in, on Cuba policy was basically a, the result of a campaign promise to a small group of anti-embargo activists that the administration promised they would review President Trump's policy on Cuba. Okay, we all get that. Elections have consequences. Uh, the good news is, is that there's no sign yet that the Biden administration is going to attempt to replicate the Obama appeasement policy of Cuba. But the bad news is everything else. It is that you cannot compartmentalize policy. You cannot wall off a few things that you're doing over here and be blind to what is happening in Havana. 
in the past year, everybody probably saw the, 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 uh, the demonstrations, the historic demonstrations last year in uh, Havana. Well, since then, there has been, in even the New York Times has called it the most punitive response, the most punitive crackdown on democracy activists in Cuba since the beginning of the revolution. Secondly, Cuba has been at the forefront of defending Putin's invasion of Ukraine. They just passed a new draconian law that even criminalizes dissent more. So any changes in our Cuba policy that fails to recognize or fails to hold this regime accountable for its behavior, and that's just a snippet of all of the things it's been doing, then you are basically giving a green light to the regime who understands there are no consequences, there will be no consequences for its aberrant behavior. And that is, again, going back to President Biden's own words, that's only going to create more incentive for these bad actors to continue their anti-American agendas. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. Victoria? Thanks, Mike, and, and Jose and Carrie and Emmanuel. Uh, it's great to be with you, you all discussing this topic. One of many things that Mike left out of my bi uh, biography is that I'm an alum of Senator Cruz's office. So his interest in both Venezuela and, and Cuba is deeply personal and something we worked we worked very closely on. And, and so, as I said, it's great to be here to have this conversation. I think probably the most original thoughts that I have on it do come from the energy sector. Uh, what we've watched unfold over the last 18 months is a energy policy that has been brutally mugged by political reality in terms of extremely high gas and diesel and natural gas prices. Uh, which are clamping down on all Americans, and I think it was President Biden, or <laughs> o Biden, President Obama, who, sa who said that his poll numbers were literally correlated to gas prices, and it's it's one of the most fundamental political realities in the United States. And I think the problem, the president actually, I think inadvertently articulated it in his remarks last week when he said we're in the middle of a, an incredible transformation, transition. Uh, in which basically he said these prices are what you're going to have to endure to get to our bright, shiny future of renewables and alternative fuels. Uh, and that is simply, as I said, divorced from reality. That doesn't have to happen this way. And so what they're up against is desperately trying to lower these prices artificially to get us to that transition. And I think that's what Jose was referring to in terms of the out, very ill-advised outreach to Caracas is they think that there's this mythical supply of uh, Venezuelan crude that's somehow going to save save their chances in November. I mean, that's false. I mean, environmentally, it's also awful. This is the dirtiest, most polluting crude on the planet. And then finally, there's this canard that they're somehow going to peel Venezuela off of Russia and Havana. It can't happen. And even if Nicolas Maduro wanted closer relations with the United States, he, he physically can't. They guarantee his security. So there is no universe in which we can guarantee his security. Uh, I mean, he, they're, they're so in, just intimately intertwined. And so this, this is simply fantasy. It's a dream. And that's not something you want to base American foreign national security policy on. Uh, so I feel very strongly that that needs to be exposed uh, as the sort of political trick that it is 
and that the American people aren't under the illusion that there is some grand deal to be made here, not with, the, not with this government. Uh, and all we are doing is playing into the hands of both Moscow and Havana. So that's basically my, my shtick on that. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Victoria. Gary? Sure. Thanks very much. It's great to see some of you who I, I know in the audience and others that I don't. Uh, I'm really most interested in the Q&A portion, so I'm going to keep my remarks relatively short. Um, but I will say, you know, when Mike sent out this invitation at the very bottom, it laid out some ideas, and he mentioned that what the Biden administration was doing was empowering our two biggest foes in the region. Um, I have one correction to that, which is I think he's actually empowering our five biggest foes in the region. He's empowering the Cuban regime. He's empowering the Venezuelan regime. But he's also empowering, and this is to Victoria's point, um, the Chinese Communist Party, Iran, and uh, Russia. So these are three countries who have been using the gap and the um, departure of the United States from the region in order to embolden themselves. And so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about their role in the region, just as a simple example, because um, I think numbers do a lot of talking. When you look at Chinese investment in the region, obviously centralized from uh, Cuba and Venezuela, but really going across Latin America, into 2002, the investment was around $17 billion. Um, by 2025, they're projecting to have invested around $500 billion, at the same time that the United States is not really able to bring its partners, including Mexico, which is one of our most important uh, partners in the region, to the Summit of the Americas this week. So that's one point that we're talking about not just American foreign policy in Latin America. We're talking about American foreign policy in the context of great power competition and how it's playing out right here. Um, the second thing that I would add is I'm not actually criticizing the Biden administration's foreign policy in Latin America because I don't know what it is, and I don't think they do either, and that's the problem. There is not a foreign policy that they're promoting in the region, and this goes to Jose's point. They're just being reactive and responsive, sometimes to what's happening in the region, other times to things completely disconnected from it. So just as a quick example, um, he mentioned that uh, Venezuela, our policy in Venezuela, negotiating with the Maduro regime for oil, um, was a reaction to... Putin's war in Ukraine. That's absolutely true. As another example, our negotiations with the Cuban regime uh, were stemming from the fact that Mexico said that they would not come to the summit of the Americas unless Cuba was invited. And then we did this in an effort to try to get them to be a little bit appeased. And by the way, we may still end up inviting a Cuban representative. I'm not even 100% sure. We may capitulate on that as well. When it comes to one of our allies, which is Brazil, um, I think that the president should have met with Bolsonaro a long time ago. He obviously didn't. But the fact that now he's meeting with Bolsonaro during a bilat at the Summit of the Americas because Bolsonaro said otherwise he would not come just shows that we have no leadership. He's capitulating to everybody, our allies and our adversaries. So that's the concern that I have, that there is not a comprehensive strategy of how we are going to affect the change that will benefit American interests in the region. And that's why we're seeing so many different random ideas being presented, usually on a very short time time frame. Um, so I hope we get the opportunity to speak a little bit more in depth about that and some of the suggestions that I know uh, this panel has for how we can improve the policy and support American interests uh, more effectively. Thank you, Carrie, for those excellent points. And last but not least, Emmanuel. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to be here. I actually feel in the presence of experts, and I'm, I'm just a student of Latin America. I've only recently uh, started looking into this region uh, 
in the past seven years, uh, and, and I'm still learning. It's a, it's a steep learning curve. Um, what I wanted to uh, bring up today um, to, to complement the comments of my colleagues is um, that when you look at the region as a whole, what I see today is the, the three biggest challenges are non-state actors who are um, you know, not interested and frankly not affected by borders and are just to interrupt, um, I don't have COVID. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, state actors that are being penetrated, uh, taken over, infiltrated by non-state actors and that are traditionally um, beset by weak institutions and corruption. So we're talking about local, regional, uh, state actors in the region. And then outside, outside uh, of the region, actors such as you know the great powers mentioned. Now there is what I see from my vantage point, looking at um, hybrid uh, threat networks and illicit finance threats and terror finance threats in the region. What I see is an absolute convergence of these three categories: the non-state actors, the crime syndicates that are taking over increasingly uh, countries or sections and regions of countries uh, in, in uh, the Western Hemisphere, are colluding with state actors in the region. Some state actors in the region, and of course Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua are notable examples of this, but the trend I think is spreading, are basically Crime syndicates, sometimes driven by ideology, sometimes without the any any uh, resemblance of ideology left, but they are basically crime syndicates that have emptied the substance of state, civil society, and institutions, and are using the trappings of a sovereign state to advance their criminal uh, designs. So you have non-state actors, the crime syndicates, crime criminals, corrupt politicians, colluding or taking over state institutions. And then you have the outside players. And when a prime minister, a president, a foreign minister, a minister of finance, a minister of the interior, a minister of justice, in these circumstances, has to seek cooperation on combating organized crime, uh, dealing with the environment, promoting development. Who do they look for? The country that comes in and says, we can do business with you, but you've got to comply with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and you've got to comply with our environmental standards, and you've got to protect the whales and the dolphins and, and all the other animals and the forest. And, the, and all that these people want to do is cut the forest and, you know, kill the animals and traffic in this and traffic in that. They don't want regulations. They don't want civil rights. They don't want aggressive and well-funded prosecutorial powers in, the, in an independent judiciary that can hold the elected powers to account. And so the outside actors, China, Russia, Iran, come in and have something to offer that do not have, does not have those conditions. And here I want to mention just a couple of recent episodes that should draw our attention. And again, they have to have they have to do with how integrated these evil powers are in the region. The first is uh, double murder 
of two prosecutors in the last three weeks. Marcelo, Marcelo Pecci, Paraguayan prosecutor, one of the very few incorruptible, untouchable um, uh, prosecutors in Paraguay, assassinated in Colombia in a very exclusive, secluded private resort uh, on May 10, while he was there on honeymoon with his pregnant wife. Uh, the order probably came from somewhere in the political sphere of Paraguay, but the execution of the murder, the planning, the funding, could draw in both outside actors, non-state actors, international actors. Two weeks later, the murder of Luz Marina Delgado in, in Ecuador, again, a prosecutor heavily engaged in fighting organized crime in a region of Ecuador that is being taken over by Colombian cartels. Three days after Marcelo Pecci gets assassinated, a Venezuelan cargo plane manned and managed and piloted by an 18-people crew of Venezuelans and Iranians, including an Iranian IRGC general, lands in the tri-border area of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay to pick up some cigarettes from the former president of Paraguay, who's under investigation for money laundering, illicit finance, takes the cigarettes to Aruba, takes the general from Aruba to Santo Domingo, then to Nicaragua, back to Venezuela. Then they fly off to Iran, to Moscow, and back. And that gives you a sense of how these three evil players, the criminal syndicates, the corrupt state actors, and international players are coordinating and converging. You want to talk about convergence? Look at Venezuela and Cuba. In 2019, Cuba had a referendum to approve its new constitution. For the first time, they insisted on having their Cuban uh, um, foreign residents vote um, from wherever they are. And so I just looked up uh, a Cuba-friendly media platform announcing that more than 22,000 Cuban doctors are going to participate in the referendum uh, vote in Venezuela. Now, how many people work for the Cuban health, uh, uh, public health sector? Approximately 250,000. So that means that 10% or more of Cuba's public health sector is in Venezuela. I kid you not, not all of them are doctors. It gives you a sense of how all of this is happening. And that presents huge challenges to the United States, of course, because it means that the region is slowly fading away from our goal and ideal of having functioning democracies, prosperous economies, secure borders, um, a thriving civil societies, all the goals that this administration is supposedly pursuing in order to address our southern border crisis, the corruption pandemic in the region, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that we need to look at this problem from a sort of a 35,000 feet perspective of an integrated challenge that involves the criminal syndicates, the state actors in the region that are being taken over by crime, and the international players that are taking advantage of this situation, coordinating with the other two categories in order to advance their goals against ours. Thank you. That's great, Emmanuel. Thank you very much. We're now at 229. I see this uh, a lot of uh, heavy hitters. There's no time for questions here, now, but I'll get to you. Um, <clears throat> a lot of heavy hitters, including my friend Frank Ozone, who's a tireless fighter for the human rights of the people of Cuba. I wanted to get it going with a, a couple of questions, and then we'll uh, turn it to the, to the audience and the people online. I wanted to start with uh, Victoria. 
Victoria, since uh, November, over 80,000 Cubans <clears throat> have arrived across the, the southern border. Uh, and I guess maybe about 150,000 are expected this year alone. <clears throat> this is not an accident. This is something that the Cuban regime has done for a very long time. Do you agree that this is part of that pattern? And how do you assess the administration's response to this? Uh, well, yes, I do agree it is part of that pattern. And this points to a larger issue that I think you know, we as conservatives need to you know, come to terms, which is that border security has become a major pillar of national security. And if we do not acknowledge that and the reality of what's happening in our border states, uh, we're, we're going to be in for our own mugging by reality. So I think, for starters, the administration's border policy has been a major contributor to this. You know, the, the regime in Havana sees weakness. They're not sending us their best and their, and their brightest by any means. And I think, uh, you know, this, this is just another call to create, you know, a much stronger DHS-type instrument that can secure the border. Anybody else want to address this question of the border? Or? If I could just uh, real quick, uh, uh, and it's alluding to something that, that Carrie also said about you know, this reaction, this reactive nature of the policy. The uh, and to put a fine point on it, it's it's weaponizing migration, and the highest talks between Cuba and the Biden administration took place about a month ago, as a result of the. Uh, the stark increase in Cubans, now they're being pushed out. Um, and they're working with this network, this alliance that Emmanuel so eloquently talked about, is they're now going through uh, Nicaragua, a fellow authoritarian regime, and pushing the Cubans on foot up through uh, Central America to come to our border. So it is part of this uh, network and at the same time, it is, uh, it, it's weaponizing migration to try and exact concessions from the U.S. Yeah, this is actually, we had a, a Catholic priest here from Father, Father Castor, who's very well known. He alerted us to these flights taken off from Camagüey province to Nicaragua. And let me say, you know, at one point I was a little Cuban kid yearning for freedom, and thank God I found a home here in the U.S., but this is weaponizing the suffering of the people. Uh, Carrie, I want to turn to you, unless somebody else wants to talk, talk, talk about this issue of the border. Carrie, I wanted to turn to you, because you, you quite rightly corrected my email and said not just our two biggest foes, but they, they hate us, but, but really we're dealing with Iran, China, and Russia here. And I, I think this, that's a really excellent point, Carrie. I wonder if you can expand on that. What should Americans know what should we expect from the administration? We, you know, Cuba and Venezuela are one order, but but Iran, Russia, China, this is something else. Right. Well, and first of all, I do just want to say one, it's just such a tiny pet peeve of mine. I don't know if this came from the Trump administration or what, but we started to talk about migration, not immigration. And I think it's a weird word to be using. Not on purpose. So I, yeah, I, 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 I think, you know, when we talk about migration, I'm often thinking about like animals migrating to like a water source or something. But these are people who are coming to the United States with the intention of immigrating here, living here. So I do think it's important that we use the language, you know, of immigrating because they're not, you know, just trying to come through. Um, so listen, 
ultimately, all of our foreign policy, whether it's with respect to Latin America, whether it's res with respect to Europe or the Indo-Pacific or Africa, needs to bear in mind the central question of the U.S. interests that are at stake here, right? Everything needs to be centered around that core theme. And I think when you look at Latin America, you see great power competition playing out in a way that you really don't see as concretely in some other areas. And it's in a much more subtle way. When you talk about U.S. interests, you know, in the Latin America region, you're talking about, um, you know, as was mentioned, transnational criminal organizations. These are including the cartels and the narco traffickers, both those associated with the Maduro regime and those not associated, um, that have resulted in the deaths of over 100,000 Americans in 2021 alone. Uh, you're also talking about 80,000 Americans that were murdered by fentanyl, which is largely coming through the Mexican border from China. So there you're seeing how China didn't just murder a million Americans with COVID, they murdered 1.1 million Americans with COVID combined with, um, uh, with fentanyl. Um, obviously, illegal immigration is soaring to unprecedented levels in the last two years, um, which is also something that affects U.S. national security, particularly when you're in a crisis moment of both a public health crisis, when you're talking about potential drug use, um, this is something that uh, that is a core national security concern for us. I mentioned Chinese investment in the region already. Um, Russia has obviously been using the dictatorial regimes in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua to increase their influence in the region. We know that they have mercenaries on the ground there. We know that they have been training um, the dictators in Cuba and Venezuela. And we know, by the way, that the Cubans have been training the dictators in Venezuela. So it's this sort of net Work of dictators in the region that are using their tools of repression, sharing that knowledge base in a way that for some reason we're not sharing our knowledge about economic reform, prison reform, things that would actually be helpful to the people of these countries. Um, so this is why, you know, U.S. dictatorships south of the border matter. And when you think about where a lot of these immigrants are coming from, they're coming from countries, whether it's Cuba because of the repression, whether it's uh, Nicaragua and um, uh, and, and Venezuela to escape the regimes there. Uh, if you want to address the root causes of immigration, addressing the dictatorships in the region is your number one strategy for doing that because six million people did not leave any country for economic reasons. Six million people left Venezuela because they had nowhere else to go. So we need to be focusing on addressing the real root causes of immigration, which are the dictatorships in these um, in these countries. And I'll just very quickly say, you know, I, I mentioned the idea of the Biden administration not having a strategy. And I, I do want to kind of explain what the Trump administration strategy is, and I'll do it very, very quickly, which is essentially our objective was to simultaneously provide support to the people of these countries while depriving the regime of their main sources of income. And the main sources of income, when you look at the Cuban regime, are very clear. They're tourism, which is why we had all the limitations that we implemented on the tourism sector. It's medical missions, which is basically a slave trade that they categorize as humanitarian aid that brings billions of dollars to the regime. And it's remittances. And so you've seen over the course of the last year of the Biden administration in all three of those areas, concessions be given back to the Cuban regime. So if they can explain how those concessions, which are funneling billions of dollars to the Cuban regime, are supporting the people who have no access to that income, that would be very useful and beneficial, I think, for all of us in the room. The same is true for Venezuela. When we were dealing with Venezuela, we were sanctioning the elements of the regime's income that were not otherwise going to the people of Venezuela. And 
as a result, we were hoping that we could help empower and support the people while depriving the regime of the money that it uses to repress them. Um, and again, as we saw with Venezuela, it's unclear exactly what may have been traded in this negotiation with the Maduro regime, but we certainly know that the sanctions uh, have been placed on the table in exchange for a commitment to go back to the Mexico negotiations. Negotiations that, by the way, the Maduro regime had departed from unilaterally previously um, and has shown no interest in actually scheduling. Um, so the fact that we don't have a date yet for those negotiations and the fact that we would that we would remove our most aggressive sanctions and our highest point of leverage in an effort to get them to come to a table. Coming to a table is not a goal. That is a tactic in order to achieve an end state, but you don't remove all your leverage in order to get them to step one. Um, and I, I don't quite understand the, what the rationale uh, behind that was. Um, so I think it's really important that as we consider what are the next best steps in, in the region, looking at it through the lens of how can we simultaneously help support the freedom of the people in these countries, which will also ultimately help us in our campaigns against China and Russia and a little bit Iran as well. Um, you know, it's, it really is a win-win strategy for all involved and for U.S. interests. And so it's, it's shocking to me that that hasn't been the way in which it's articulated. And in fact, the National Security Council had, had expressed that they were very proud of the fact that China doesn't factor in a single time in their Western Hemisphere strategy. That's not something to be proud of. That's something to be extremely concerned by when our entire you know, foreign policy principle is focused on how we can best counter China and how China is increasing its role and reputation and influence in the region. Kerry, thank you so much for that. I, I, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. To me, it's, it's inexplicable that when they talk about root causes, we're not talking about the governments in Caracas and especially the, 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 the serpent's head in, in Havana. Um, I wanted to, if anybody else wants to comment on this, let me know, but I, if not, nope, I'll, see, I'll go to Emmanuel, uh, and Emmanuel, you follow terrorist networks and illicit activity in the region, um, and, and, and by the way, I, I, I love your remarks about how all these NGOs and non-state actors kind of usurp the sovereignty, the body of the host. Uh, to that, I would add uh, NGOs, uh, which do a lot of good work, but also a lot of bad work in Latin America, in places like Guatemala. I wonder if you could speak to uh, Emmanuel about, to, in terms of the threat to the U.S. southern border uh, from these networks. Uh, we saw uh, somebody come in uh, across the border recently with a plan to assassinate President Bush, and he was going to join other people. So I wonder if you could speak in, in that context. What, what should Americans fear from these non-state actors and crime syndicates and terrorist groups? So clearly anyone can get through a porous border and the southern border is, is pretty porous. Um, uh, having said that, and I have to caveat my comment uh, by, by uh, reminding you that I, I do look mostly at Iran and Hezbollah. And when you look at these actors who obviously have um, for years tried to uh, carry out attacks against uh, US targets both inside the US and abroad, uh, just a reminder, 2011, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard's uh, plan to assassinate the Saudi, the then Saudi ambassador to the U.S. Uh, um, with this fanciful idea of of uh, blowing up Cafe Milano in, in Georgetown. Uh, I could think of a worse restaurant to blow up. But, uh, um, and um, and what do they do? They they um, commission. An Iranian businessman uh, based in Texas who's a relative of uh, a guard member 
And he then goes to the Zeta cartels to get the explosives, right? And uh, what is he doing in Texas, by the way? He's a used car salesman who was using used cars uh, at the time to launder money, Hezbollah from the United States into um, West Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So you look at that uh, that case, and you look at subsequent cases, Samir el-Debek and Ali Kurani arrested in 2017, Alexei Saab in 2019. These are three uh, to be, you know, he's not the same as Alex Saab, the Venezuelan businessman. He's a Hezbollah um, uh, external security operation agent. All of these people came into the U.S. legally. They came into the U.S. legally uh, as students or on work visas or tourists, and then they uh, proceeded to uh, put roots down, then they proceeded to apply for green cards, then they proceeded to apply for citizenship. And in each and every one of these cases, once they got their citizenship, Hezbollah activated them. They said, now you have a U.S. passport, you are, you are married, you have a business, you, have some, you, you, you are part of the environment. And this is one of the things we need to look at, because... One thing is the uh, radicalized uh, individual who uh, wants to carry out an attack. And another thing is the assassin who gets sent in to carry out the attack. And these people may come in legally or illegally uh, at the last moment. And by the way, if you are sort of tasked to assassinate President Bush or any other president or any other person, um, why would you put your uh, trained assassin through the daunting task of crossing all of Central America like uh, an illegal immigrant uh, to make it, it clandestinely through the border. It's much easier to fly in undercover with false passports, all things that these actors can procure. But the point is that these actors do plant um, agents in the United States using and abusing the immigration system with a clear purpose of having these people rooted in the country so that they can be activated at the right time. Now, I, where I do see the threat more significantly is on two different levels. One is, of course, soft U.S. targets in the Western Hemisphere, so outside of the United States, where these actors thanks to their connections, Venezuela, again, Cuba, Nicaragua come to mind, have the ability to get into the region and then vanish and disappear and carry out their planning. And the second thing where, yes, the border is porous, is in illicit finance. The United States is fast becoming the best place in the world to launder money from illicit proceeds. And a lot of the Money laundering schemes, whether it is Venezuela or Hezbollah or Iran or Cuba or anyone else, they go through the U.S. And why? Well, because it's the best place to invest. We still have some of the most opaque jurisdictions to establish trusts or to invest in real estate. I can um, look at the county record, property records, where each and every one of you in this room live and find out your home and your mortgage. But if you own an LLC in any one of the 50 states of the union, I can't find you. So we have a problem here that makes the US vulnerable to this type of activity. And of course, whenever there is terror, 
and terror plotting to kill people, you first need terror finance to support it. Thank you very much for that. I have I had more questions to ask, but you know what? We're at the, the 15 minute mark here left. Uh, many, many, proper, a lot of good questions here from the audience. I want to turn to you now. Wait for the microphone to arrive to you. There will be somebody with a microphone. Uh, identify yourself by name and organization. Uh, also, keep the question brief and make it a question, something with a question mark at the end. <laughs> um, please refrain from making statements. Thank you very much. And at first, I recognize Frank Calzone, my old friend. Not that you're old, Frank, but uh, we've known each other for decades. Thank you very much. Uh, very good panel. I, I have a factual question to the uh, panel. Some of the issues that you touch upon has to do with national security of the United States. Can anybody tell me whether Havana has objected to Putin's threat to deploy Russian forces in what Moscow called his Western Hemisphere allies, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela? And also, can you tell us whether in that context Cuba has objected to Moscow's threats to use nuclear weapons in the Ukrainian war? Uh, Frank, are you asking that question to anybody in particular or just general? Okay, anybody wants to take that up, Jose? I am not aware. Uh, I certainly am aware, however, uh, of the, um, the, the propaganda support that the current regime in Cuba has been giving to Putin. You know, these countries, um, not only are they aligned in nefarious uh, business dealings, uh, transnational organized crime, but they're also united in supporting uh, networks, uh, TV network, cable networks, all around the region that uh, are lockstep in anti-U.S. propaganda. So they have been using those networks all throughout Latin America and even abroad, uh, outside uh, Latin America, on, on Putin, uh, Putin, defending Putin's invasion. Uh, we all know throughout, throughout the Cold War, Russia, Soviet Union, long history uh, of being embedded in Cuba, um, and they've operated a, an intelligence listening facility. Uh, we're been, I've been watching that very closely to see what happens if the Russians come back. They, they pretty much uh, walked away um, uh, after the end of the Cold War. But then you see periodic uh, news reports that, that, uh, that they're back there listening to all electronic communications going on uh, on the east coast of the United States. Uh, as far as uh, Putin, Havana's all in, and uh, and and we we do see Russians in uh, in Venezuela. Oh, yeah. They're training. Uh, we see Iranian uh, weapons, uh, drones that can be weaponized in in Venezuela. The, these regimes are arming themselves to the teeth with the support of Russia. And uh, and that nothing can nothing good can come of that. And uh, this idea, as as Carrie mentioned earlier, that somehow we're going to apply Maduro or the Cuban regime away from Moscow with baubles and trinkets, is folly, complete folly. It's not only ideological, but it is criminal. 
these networks uh, in unison. And so uh, they are dedicated enemies of the United States. And again, this idea that somehow we can we can uh, change their, their their outlook by, uh, you know, selling them or, or uh, uh, whatever U.S. products or sending tourists down there is is completely inconceivable. Thank you. Anyone else? I just want to add one thing um, to what Jose said, because he mentioned, you know, the idea that you're going to change regime behavior based on these, you know, these promises is silly. I want to talk a little bit just very quickly about what has changed the Cuban regime's behavior over the last few years. Um, and I, the way that I'll do that is through the lens of human rights, because I think arbitrary detentions is something that has been consistently uh, studied inside Cuba uh, to figure out exactly how many people are being thrown in prison for normal behavior, you know, protests, sometimes just standing outside and obviously during COVID, you know, not wearing a mask or something like that. So in 20, and these numbers are from Human Rights Watch, which I'm going to share just because it's not exactly a bastion of like conservative propaganda, right? So 2015 from Human Rights Watch in January to October. So just as a reminder, Obama started the warming of relations basically in December of 2014. There were 6,200 arbitrary detentions, according to Human Rights Watch. In 2016, there were, so this is again, now we've had a year of the warming of relations, a good relationship with the Cuban regime. We had 9,940 arbitrary detentions. Then you go into 2017, where the Trump administration, I will say, had been stating that they were going to change the Cuba policy. And that message really matters because we see in 2017, under the Trump administration, a decline to 4,537 arbitrary detentions. That's down by 50% over the previous year. In 2018, we saw that drop again to 2,000. In 2019, it dropped again, 1,800. In 2020, it was just over 1,000. It was 1,028. Now, go to the Biden administration, July 2021. The same number of people were detained in the entirety of 2020 that were detained in one month under the Biden administration. That is very compelling information. That is very compelling statistics that show what transforms the Cuban regime's behavior. And it is not reaching out a hand to negotiate. It is making it very clear that we are going to deprive them of the resources that they need in order to repress their people. And if they don't have those resources, they cannot repress them. And particularly at a moment where Russia is otherwise engaged, for us to now be extending a hand to the Cubans at precisely the moment where they could continue to the Cuban regime, at precisely the moment where the regime could suffer even more is absolutely insane to me. Thank you. That's great. Great comment. Now, uh, Professor Karen Skinner. Thank you, um, Mike, for putting together this panel. Um, I'm a visiting fellow at Heritage, and it's great to see that we're reacting on Western HIM issues um, as they unfold. I, I look forward to doing more with you on this. But I have a question. It's not really being facetious, but it kind of is. Um, I want to know why we can't have a grand strategy for the Western Hem. This is a bipartisan issue, um, and you know it's taking pot shots at the Biden administration to talk about um, what they're doing wrong. When you find yourself talking about whether we should keep sanctions, lift sanctions, that there's great power competition in the region, that's typically a sign that you don't have a strategy. We face that in the Trump administration as well. 
um, during the Cold War. Our Cold War strategy was a Cold War strategy, keep the Russians out. We never really had a Western ham strategy like um, the work that was done by Victoria and others on Indo-Pacific. If I think the China problem and the five countries that Victoria, um, that um, Carrie mentioned, are a symptom, not the problem itself. If we had a strategy that looked at the importance of the rise of countries in the global south, I think it would scare off some of our um, great power competitors. Can you figure out how we do the harder thing? Well, this is a fantastic question for any of you to hit out of the ballpark. Western ham strategy. Take it away. Discuss, well, I, I, I was going to say that I have a great idea for, for the next panel. Um, oh, no. But in all seriousness, Dr. Skinner, I, I think I agree totally, 100 percent with your observations. I think that um, when, I, when I think about the, the next big idea, uh, in the region, it, it directly results from uh, what we all, uh, as a country, came to recognize was our vulnerabilities uh, as a result of the COVID uh, outbreak and how vulnerable our supply chains were. And, and I think that if we want a big idea that would unite this hemisphere is to figure out, look, I understand in classical economics, you always, of course, are trying to drive your costs down. And uh, that's what naturally led so much of our manufacturing abroad. We all get that. But classical economics did not also uh, provide an answer for what happens when it's an adversary or a strategic competitor that is in control of those uh, connections. And I, I think, again, that what our conversation, and this is what the next Summit of the Americas should have been about, in my opinion. It's not going to be about that. <laughs> is it's about climate change right, and equity. Right. Yeah. Is beginning a conversation about how, let's take a look at shortening supply chains. How does this hemisphere, which is, uh, offers so many uh, attractions and advantages and shortens by thousands of miles uh, U.S. supply chains, and you know, perhaps bringing some of this manufacturing uh, capability back to the Western Hemisphere, um, and, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's just, we're talking about, you know, moving an air, uh, turning an aircraft carrier here. But governments should start talking about incentives for, and the United States should be in the lead in, in how we begin this new conversation with our partners in the region. Uh, because, again, I, for one, was just, uh, you know, uh, astonished at, at how vulnerable we became. Um, as a result of COVID and all, all that we've experienced over the last couple of years. And, and I think that, that our own hemisphere presents incredible opportunities uh, in the years to come to change that, that alignment. That's great. And every time you go to Central America, all they say is, we want to be just like Singapore, Taiwan, and Korea. Victoria? I, I would just add to that, and Kyron, it's great to see you in person again post-pandemic, uh, that that the only time we've had a discernible national strategy, it was the Monroe Doctrine for Latin America. Now, they, what it was, and I think that's what what shows us of the deficiency. But what I think is applicable is the recognition of the the special vulnerabilities and relationships the United States has in the Western Hemisphere, and and 
embracing that rather than treating it as a weakness, which is what I think Jose is talking about. And the other macro issue is if we are being driven by great power competition, primarily with China, but also with our Russian and Iranian friends, this exposes the fallacy that you confront that problem by pivoting to Asia, that, that everything that happens with China happens in, in the Indo-Pacific. It doesn't. It happens in the Middle East. It happens in Europe. It happens in Latin America. And so making what we, how we approach Latin America an integral part, or, and South America an integral part of, of how we are going to counter China, you know, then going to a, a focus, as, as Jose described, you know, in, in manufacturing and supply chains just makes all the sense in the world. And you just need to frame it that way. Kerry, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I think I will. You, you were at the State Department recently. Want to take a shot at a Western Ham strategy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's a couple of different things. Um, so first of all, I think when it comes to our economic partnership, I think we need to go back to the position where we are working towards America becoming the partner of choice for the region, and we're not there anymore. Um, I think that involves, you know, control over the supply chain and working with countries on that. I think it also involves establishing new trade agreements with countries in the region, um, which we have really not done. Um, obviously, the, the the Trump administration did some new trade agreements, at least with Mexico, but continuing to expand upon that because otherwise they're going to immediately be pivoting towards China. Um, I think we also need to be focusing on um, issues of um, that are centrally important both to us and to the region. And so, for, for example, I, I know it sounded like I was, you know, making a joke when I said the summit is about equity and climate change. I actually, that is what it's about. That, yes, that's part of the agenda. Sadly, not a joke. And so the, the reason I, I pointed that out is because that's not the number one priority for the people in the region. And so if this is meant to be a conversation where we're mutually empowering others in the region, going at it by saying you need to do climate change policies and you need to have equity is not going to be the way to bring these partners on board. So we need to recognize that as much as we have our priorities when it comes to you know our behaviors internally and our culture, socially engineering countries in Latin America is not an effective foreign policy strategy. Frankly, it's very reminiscent of the strategies that the left is often very critical of. Um, and yet the Biden administration, one of the first things they did was try to make uh, funding for Guatemala, which is a key um, ally for us in, in the fight against illegal immigration, contingent upon them changing their LGBT laws, um, you know, for a predominantly Catholic country. And so we need to be mindful that there's a lot of overlap um, how to assist with prison reform in, in the countries, right? Ecuador is dealing with significant issues um, in their prisons. We can help address that, and yet we're not talking about it at all. You want to confront China? Why don't we talk about unregulated fishing, um, we, where China is the number one violator of this, and it is harming indigenous communities all throughout the coasts of Latin America, and the Biden administration is not talking about it. Even though it helps with their climate agenda, it helps with their um, uh, support for indigenous communities, and it helps encountering China. So I think all of our Latin America strategy needs to be bundled up together with, number one, how can we help the U.S. be a partner of choice to these countries? Number two, how can we use that in order to push China to the sidelines of these countries? And number three, how can we actually empower these countries to accomplish the things that they want to accomplish that are also mutually beneficial to the United States, rather than trying to force our perspective onto them when they may not be at a position right now to be you know, pursuing those things? That's fantastic, and we're rapidly running out of time, as one does with good panels. I'm going to ask my colleague, 
Matteo Heider. If there's a, a very good question from the people online that you must uh, squeeze in. If not, I think John Suarez had his hand up earlier. Matteo, anything online? Thank yes. you all for a wonderful panel. Uh, one quick question from the audience that I think uh, ties a lot of the earlier points uh, together as well. Uh, as we all know, there is a little-known uh, or often uh, ignored uh, hostage crisis in Venezuela as well, with uh, at least eight Americans currently held hostage by the Maduro regime, used as pawns, uh, essentially by the regime. It's it's a two-pronged question there. Uh, on on one side, uh, how do we raise the cost on these regimes uh, of blackmail, essentially, and of trying to strong arm um, the United States government? Uh, using American lives, uh, and in other cases, um, going back to an earlier point uh, of weaponizing, uh, Kerry, as you rightly stated, immigration, uh, and, and so tying that together, uh, but that going hand in hand with uh, what do we do in raising that cost also to free um, the Americans uh, currently held hostage and kidnapped by the regime? Anybody want to tackle that? I would just say that... Um Victoria and, and Carrie also uh, recognize uh, the issue of U.S. Hostages, hostages abroad is one of the most difficult issues that any U.S. policymaker can um, address, and that is because um, you you don't want to do anything that, as the Matteo just noted, that drives up the cost or that drives up the value of that hostage. You also have, and it's 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 cruel and it's harsh to say, but this is the way the, the real world works: is that when you're a U.S. policymaker, you do have to uh, uh, balance a number of competing priorities, and you don't want to create open season on Americans abroad by uh, making it. I, I don't want this to come out wrong, but so much of a priority that your adversary starts to game it and leverage it against you and other Americans. So the, uh, the team that went down uh, did secure the release of two individuals. Uh, there are more Americans. We don't want to drive up the value of more American hostages in Venezuela. But I will say this, is that, that the Biden administration has been conspicuous in its aversion to uh, implementing any more sanctions on the Venezuela regime. And I think that that is backfiring because they, they stated policy on Venezuela is using uh, sanctions to induce concessions from the Maduro regime. And yet there doesn't go, a week go by where we don't see, for example, a U Iranian tanker putting into a Venezuelan port, uh, discharging oil that's then used to mix to make uh, Venezuelan oil more marketable. So we're watching this strategy of the Biden administration being undermined. Uh, and, and yet we have been reluctant to continue to sanction this regime. Now, sanctions, yes, they have their limits. They have, uh, they uh, have a mixed record of what they the the, the policies uh, victories they've produced, but at the same time uh, they are an essential part of the policy uh, toolkit. We're not going to invade Venezuela. Uh, 
So we have to use the, the tools that we have available to try and hold this regime accountable for its bad behavior. And I suggest that this administration needs to return to a robust sanctions regime uh, against this regime, holding it accountable, individual uh, sanctions, Magnitsky sanctions, uh, more sectoral sanctions, uh, closing off the Iranian uh, relationship on oil, uh, things of that nature. Well, running hard against that adversary time, anybody else want to tackle this hostage question before we go to I John actually Sarris? do. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because I think that the, the bottom line is that we're, we're fighting gangsters with water pistols. So. Um, and it's not always been the case. I mean, you don't need to go all the way to the Burberry Wars of, you know, which was what, the first American, first American foreign war, war Jefferson. Uh, against pirates. Uh, and, and, but, but, and, and the hostage problem in Venezuela is not only in Venezuela. We have hostages in Iran. Uh, and we have countries that have made it a policy of, of taking hostages just like you know, the old uh, the old uh, Hadis and, and sultans would do in the central canons of Asia um, back in the day. Um, sometimes we have used uh, uh, pretty strong signals, and and they tend to be most effective when they are unexpected and unpredictable. I think that nobody in this town would have advised, uh, uh, and I know that in the past that there was advice against killing the commander of the IRGC. Uh, uh, Cod's force, uh, Qasem Soleimani, but lo and behold, the Trump administration uh, sent him to his uh, numerous uh, um, angels uh, waiting for him for his delight in heaven prematurely. And yes, the Iranians have tried to retaliate. Um, that's part of the game. But the message was heard loud and clear, and it had an, an enormous impact. Now, I'm not saying that we should vaporize Maduro and Delcy Rodriguez as they travel around Latin America. But what I'm saying is that we do have some pressure tools. One of the things that is so easy to do for State Department, and it is, frankly, extremely effective, is to engage in a systematic policy of revoking visas for corrupt officials of, for, of, of uh, asset forfeitures for sanctioned individuals. We're now talking about going after forfeited uh, Russian assets in Europe and the United States that instead of being frozen can be actually turned into a fund to support Ukraine. Well, why don't you start in Miami? I can tell you there's not just Russian apartments there. There's Venezuelans, there's Paraguayans, there's Brazilians. Everybody who is corrupt and who is contributing to this set of circumstances we're confronting is vulnerable because ultimately they hold the, you know, Karl Marx on, in their left hand, but they use the right hand to pay the plane ticket and the tuition for their kids to come to the States and learn. And that's where they hurt most if we go after them. Thank you. Uh, John, last question. Make it a brief one and a good one. Um, it was mentioned earlier about the main sources of income for the dictatorship, tourism, uh, medical doctors, remittances. Under the, pre, under the Obama administration's policies, uh, medical doctors who had been able to obtain asylum at U.S. embassies, that was shut down. The trafficking went full blast. The tourism, the military expanded. They took over areas that had been controlled by civilian elements of the government during the Obama opening. And finally, in the area of remittances, there's something that's tied into with agriculture. 
Since 2000, the U.S. has been one of the main sellers of agricultural goods to Cuba, and the Cubans are able to purchase it on a cash-and-carry basis, the regime, and then they sell it inside the country. What most people don't get to hear in this conversation is that the military and the regime uh, price gouge. So the Cubans are having to pay four to 500% more than what an American has to pay for the chicken or the grain, and that goes to the military. So when I hear the Biden administration, and this is my question to you, in this conversation, there is this uh, language that this is something humanitarian that benefits Cubans, but the reality is it's benefiting the military and the dictatorship and creating greater despair among the Cubans, which is why you see more Cubans trying to flee during the Biden administration than you did during the Trump administration. So it wasn't just an issue of arbitrary detentions going up. Under Donald Trump, the number of Cubans leaving collapsed. Um, it was weaponized, but also the idea that there was hope for change. And what we saw in July of 2021 was a materialization of that. But the question is, in this conversation, how can one really bring home that this regime is not doing anything to benefit the Cuban people? And when you precisely provide them with more resources, it's something that's used to hit Cubans in the island over the head. And it's something that's sort of counterintuitive, but I wonder how that could be responded to. Thank you, Thank John. You. So all of you were nodding your heads vigorously, but you, Carrie, were nodding your head most vigorously. So, well, I mean, you know, so I, I think the, the challenge is, you know, the question is how do you really, like, bring that information home? And I just don't believe that the Biden administration is making its calculus on actually providing support to the Cuban people. Um, I think they know that that's the right message to use, um, both for votes in Florida, um, as well as just in general, the American people want to be supportive of, you know, Cuban dissidents. But there's a lot more that they could have been doing, um, both proactively as well as things that they shouldn't have done. So I'm going to give the Biden administration some credit here. I do think that the restart of um, family reunification is broadly a good idea. I will say that it was a bit of a mischaracterization to say that it had been ended. It was never ended. It was suspended because we had to draw down our embassy because 26 diplomats were um, attacked by some entity, whether it was the Cubans, whether it was the Russians, whoever it was, uh, and we still don't have a solution for that. Um, so I think there were some things that were okay in their announcements. The people-to-people -people travel, um, the idea of uh, restarting what's called the donative category of remittances, which is basically where I can give as much money as I want to anybody in Cuba uh, is deeply problematic because, as you point out, these are the number one sources of income for the Cuban regime. When you go to Cuba, for whatever reason, if you're staying in a hotel that is owned by one of two entities in Cuba, it's either owned by the Ministry of Tourism, which is a regime obviously affiliated entity, or it's owned by Gaviota, which is basically a military complex. And by the way, if you think that you're there and nobody knows what you're doing, just be mindful of how many spies are around there taking your information, reading your private diaries. We know that this is how they were able to recruit American spies, you know, from this behavior. So it's a safety concern also for Americans. Um, it's not just, you know, uh, the human rights concerns for, uh, for the people of Cuba. Um, so I just don't believe with their actions that they really care. And I think July 
of last year is a perfect example of that. There were a lot of opportunities to do a lot more to support the Cubans at this moment where they were finally, you know, going out in the street, risking everything um, in order to advocate for real change. And it was a moment where the regime was a little bit weaker um, because of the transitions of power. Um, and we didn't have, you know, high level meetings with Cuban dissidents that we then publicized. We didn't create a list of the thousands of Cuban dissidents who were being imprisoned in every single hour of every single day, putting those names out there, letting people know who was being arrested by the, by the Cuban regime. Um, we didn't help provide any sort of access to internet or provide VPNs or any way for them to try to um, coordinate with each other. Um, we did use global Magnitsky sanctions. I think that was good. Uh, they said it was the first time that those were ever used against the Cuban regime. That's not true. Um, I led the team that led the first global Magnitsky san sanctions against Cuban regime officials. Um, but I think there were moments for them to show that they really cared about the Cuban people. And I, I just don't think that's their priority. I think their goal is they want their name to live in perpetuity as having done something important with Cuba. Um, and they're willing to let the Cuban people uh, suffer as a result of them getting that recognition. Uh, fortunately, they haven't moved, as, as was said, uh, com completely to the Obama reopening of relations. Um, but frankly, with the steps that we're, being, that we're seeing being taken, I'm very concerned that it's just going to continue down that path. Well, thank you very much. Uh, now we'll move to uh, closing remarks. If you have any, if you have anything left unsaid that you want to say, we'll start at uh, the outer end, Emmanuel. And you don't have to have closing remarks, but if you have something to say, Emmanuel, you have anything? No, except to say that it was a great panel, and I want to thank you again for hosting us. So you stole my line. <laughs> he stole my line too I'm really grateful for everybody um, being here it's great to be a part of this panel um, and I really appreciate your you know, to Dr. Skinner's point raising the Western Hemisphere because it's such an important foreign policy issue for the United States Great, Victoria? I would just, to John's point uh, I think exposing the internal conflicts and fallacies of what sort of masquerades as, as humanitarian assistance is enormously important and getting that its own its own reality check. So it is clear that what we're doing is actually helping the people of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, and isn't just you know a, a rubber stamp, just trying to check a box and, as Carrie said, get recognition. Great, thank you. Um, final point from me. I just want to say that uh, just remember last year when we watched the uh, historic protests in Havana, um, those people weren't chanting for uh, more remittances or more American tour groups to visit Havana. They were, char they were chanting libertad, the freedom. And that's where US policy should be aligned. And let me get back to, to Venezuela, final point, because uh, I know I have a lot of Venezuelan friends here in the audience, is that um, you know, what Kerry was saying before about uh, we sort of lost the plot on Venezuela policy, whereby we think that getting the regime back to a negotiation with the opposition in Mexico City is somehow going to be a policy victory. Um, whereas, uh, you know, we, we have no confidence that uh, the, the regime is going to negotiate in good faith with the opposition. So uh, we need to, to, to realign our Venezuela policy uh, to, to a, a broader goal and a easily articulated policy, rather than uh, what I believe has become extremely convoluted uh, as a result of the administration's ill-considered uh, trip to Caracas, where we're talking about hostages, we're talking about oil, and we're talking about democracy. 
um, they, they, they've got, uh, sadly, they, they've worked themselves into a, into a blind alley. And we need to get back to uh, the issues that matter, and that matter to Venezuelans themselves, and that is uh, freedom, uh, democratic governance, and improving security, because that security, the worsening security uh, in Venezuela is, is, is a cancer. Uh, and it's a cancer for U.S. security interests in this hemisphere, and it, we're not addressing it. We're, we're, we're playing around the, uh, the edges, the fringes, um, and it is coming to bite us uh, you know where. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for that. I want to thank uh, our, our panelists, not just for the work that you have done for the freedom of the poor people of Cuba and Venezuela, but also to make sure that American interests are met. I want to ask all of you to please give our panelists a hand. Thank you very much for coming.